0: Historical fiction has that extraordinary access to truth, and because it's true, it is always more powerful.
1: Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History Podcast. I'm your host, Oliver Webb Carter, and today I'm talking to the best-selling author Con Igledon. Con's books may well be familiar to some of you. Along with his brother, he wrote The Dangerous Book for Boys and his Emperor series of novels, which were written in the early 2000s, a classic historical fiction based around the life of Julius Caesar. Pleasingly for me, he's recently turned his attention to ancient Greece and he's written about the battles of Marathon, Thermopylae, Salamis and Plataea. His latest book, Lion, which is out now, is the story of Pericles and Kimon as they take the fight to the Persians, even after the great victories during the Greco-Persian Wars. Pericles is perhaps Athens's greatest politician, and Kimon its greatest general. And Kong kindly gave me his time to chat about horses getting sick, illegal sleeping on sacred Greek islands, and ancient toilet stones. Elsewhere at Aspects of History, we have some great pieces to read on our website, for free. Among them, Jesse Charles, who's written about the English Civil War, Adam Zamoyski on Henry Kissinger's recent intervention on Ukraine, and Ronan McGreevy on the assassination that sparked the Irish Civil War. Now back to Conigledon. I do hope you enjoy our chat, and if you do, please subscribe, and if you can, I'd be hugely grateful if you gave me a good review. Con Egildon, welcome to the podcast. It's an, it's a real pleasure to have you on today.
0: It's lovely to be here.
1: Well, we're here to talk about your new novel, uh, mm. The Lion, and this is I think it's the start of a new series that the publisher was telling me, but it, it does follow on from your previous novel of last year Protector, doesn't it?
0: It it does to a degree. They they they've called it Lion by the way. We got rid of the definite article. Um, I mean, uh, there's just not enough time in this modern age to, uh, you know, even waste <laughs> waste a second on a single word. Um, although, I mean, obviously, it, it's based on the dream his mother is said to have had before he was just before he was born of a lion, and then it became the insignia on his his father's shield, which he would have carried at Marathon and so on. So, it's it's a pretty good word for the young Pericles, uh, the lion of yes. Athens. Um, yes, it does follow on. Uh, I mean, it, the original couple of books were dealing with um, Gates of Athens and Protector were dealing with the Persian invasion and Pericles was just a boy um, with very little sort of agency. I mean, he, in his biggest event really was being evacuated um, and sent to the island of uh, Salamis uh, just outside uh, Athens. And then from that vantage point, he saw Athens burned, set on fire twice by the uh, Persian forces. So, because he had to be evacuated again without walls around um, the city, they really didn't have a decent well there, there was no way to protect themselves from uh, uh the Persian invasion at that point. So the first two books are more about um oh people like Aristides, um you know the wonderful stories of how they resisted Anthemopylae and Plataea and Salamis, and all these extraordinary battles but it's also about the you know the beginnings of Athenian democracy and how they really got going and then it made sense to. To, when doing the actual story of Pericles, which is two books, one called Lion, one called Empire, um, to sort of set that slightly aside. I've always written books about interesting people. Um, Julius Caesar, Genghis Khan, Kublai Khan, people like that. And, uh, you know, it, it made sense to, to give it a slightly different series title, even though it does follow on uh, in sort of uh, time terms, uh, almost you know, almost day by day
1: well um it i I finished it today um and it's a it's a riveting story it's great stuff and it it but it's wonderful that um you've you've picked this period because you know you're you're a hugely successful author but the the particular the greek greco-persian wars and then obviously the the fifth century is the golden era for athens and there's so many rich stories but you you'd have to say pericles probably does dominate that century more than any other Athenian politician.
0: Yes, and that particular century, the thing that I avoided or from so many years was any hint of Alexander the Great, Um, because when I was probably no more than about 18, 16, I I read a couple of books by David Gemmell, which were fantasy slash historical fiction it's a it's a difficult sort of genre because there was a heavy element of fantasy but it was also a life of alexander the great effectively and it was done so well that i thought apart from anything else that i'd be interested in writing historical fiction it was one of the things that turned me on to the genre but also i need to never go anywhere near alexander because i cannot match this i cannot uh you know reach this height so having avoided alexander for my entire career I uh, avoided all of Greece as well, thinking that, you know, sort of one would lead automatically onto the other. But they didn't. Of course, they didn't. As you say, there are centuries of good stories um, that have nothing to do with Alexander the Great, although there is an Alexander of Macedon that turns up in the Persian invasion as an ally of... uh, Oh, as an ally of the Persians, and that was that was sort of fun because I knew the reader. If you see Alexander and Macedon in the same sentence, I knew the reader was going to jump to the wrong conclusion, which is, is fun playing around with that sort of expectation. But yes, the stories of people like um, oh uh, Pericles, Themistocles, and um, the extraordinary battles, things like the sea battles of Salamis, but also the great characters. It, 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 yeah, it has nothing to do with Alexander the Great. And Greece is a, a rich enough society to support a few authors trying to make their uh, trying to make their way. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And, you know, um, I, I definitely detected your little play playfulness with um, Alexander in the previous novel. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I've got to say Alexander the First and for our listeners, Alexander the Great was Alexander the Third. So they should check out Alexander the First because he's a hilarious character, I
0: always find. <laughs> yeah, he was an interesting man. And of course, he was. Um, oh, God, if I remember rightly, he was. Yes, he was pardoned by Cimon. I mean, the point and that got Kaimon into some difficulties at a later stage with a whole trial as to whether you should ever let an enemy combatant leave the field. So he, he turns out to be sort of pivotal. But yes, his his main uh, his main role in this was just to throw the reader the wrong way.
1: Yes. Um, so you've mentioned him there, Kaimon, Kimon, Kaimon. Hmm. Um, well, he, I, I tend
0: to go on my son's pronunciations because he's uh, he's the one who's who's got A levels in Latin and Greek and he's pretty good at this kind of thing. So, although, though, funnily yes. enough, my copy editor, um, uh, a man called Tim Waller, who is the same copy editor I've had right from uh, the gates of Rome back in 2001, um, oh, he, also, he studied classics, I think, at Cambridge. I don't want to uh, give him the wrong university, but I think it was Cambridge. So he's always been hugely useful on a personal basis because he can say things you're wrong about this con that almost no one else can say, and I do like to be accurate. Apart from anything else, I have learned that when I'm not, um, people write me the most stinging emails, um, you know, particularly with Rome. It turns out that there are Roman reenactment societies all across the country who take a very dim view of whether I suggest a peculiar tunic colour or, or shield shape. Um, they will write to me in the most unpleasant terms. So I have uh, I've learned to try and be as accurate as humanly possible. And then just to hope for the best and hope I haven't missed something. That is my great fear I should say of historical fiction. I used to call it the the Amalfi lemon problem because if you wrote about the Amalfi coast and missed out lemons you would be missing something so fundamental that everyone would know effectively that you hadn't done your research and I always worried that there would be something like in Athens of uh, 5th century BC everybody had a weasel in their house to control um, mice and rats and things like that which happens to be true um that sort of little detail I need to get right because otherwise I you know I, I look like a complete fool and I always fear that I've missed something something absolutely dreadful um and something vital to the society it's it's hard to get that kind of little detail right but I, I do my best you know
1: yeah well I know it's definitely <laughs> what I think you've, you, you've definitely succeeded I, I, I studied ancient history at uni um and absolutely loved it and so I was looking uh, over at some of my um, some of my old material uh, books um, of, uh, as I was reading your novel, uh, not not to I should hasten to add not to find uh, any 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 uh, any errors at all, just because it's such a uh, an enjoyable subject. So I was reading Thucydides and 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 the Persians by Aeschylus as well. But the source material, I mean, I, the advantage I would have thought being a fiction author in a period where it is the the dates are a bit blurred um and it is difficult to
0: to pin down it does surely make life a little bit easier for you it it can do i i used to refer to historical fiction authors as the gods of the gaps because you have to sort of find the gaps and then you could that's where you would put your fictional story i mean something like bernard cornwall and sharp is a is a reasonable example And there are gaps in the stories of Pericles. I mean, for example, the name of his sister uh, wasn't recorded or the name of his first wife. Um, So if you're writing a man's life, obviously, I'm going to have to make up those people and their characters, um, you know, from a blank sheet or in a a sort of more technical detail. I mean, the the Battle of Marathon, um, the the Athenians who marched out to confront a Persian force in the fennel field, which is what marathon uh, means on the coast, they discovered that the Persians had no cavalry. Now, the Persians definitely had cavalry, so we don't know where those tens of thousands of horses went to. Possibly they were never disembarked from the ships, possibly they'd been put back on the ships, possibly they'd all been sick because horses get sick at this, but no one knows. The Persians didn't record it, the Greeks didn't record it because they didn't care. All they found was an infantry force and they beat them and they went home again. So they were uh, delighted, but what the heck happened to the the Persian horses at uh, Marathon, we will never know. I have to write that into the story because it's it's not something you can usually ignore, especially not if you're going to have a major cavalry force turn up later at Thermopylae and Plataea and places like that. You need to explain what happened to the horses. But there's always gaps like that in historical fiction. And for the most part, uh, I, I sort of revel in it. Wilbur Smith wrote a series of books on the Courtney family. This was Mm. one of my, uh, you know. I love those. I used to read those. One of my heroes and also one of the people effectively who taught me how to to write um, by by reading their stuff. And I loved the original stories because as he went through the generations, I would know more about the grandparents of a character than they knew themselves because I'd been, you know, with that character. And that was just wonderful. That allowed me to do a sort of depth or richness of, of plot when it came to people like Kublai Khan that, you know, really helped. But I noticed those stories went right up almost to the modern day and involved suddenly a young lawyer called Nelson Mandela. And he was alive at the time. And I remember thinking, God, you know, he could sue. If If you wrote a scene now with him kicking a dog or something like this or <laughs> doing something terrible, I mean, he's still alive. This was suddenly I was I was confronted with the difficulty of coming too far into the modern day when people might take a, a very personal view of what you've written about them. So I'm happy to some extent back in the safer uh, millennia um, of uh, ancient Rome and ancient Greece. It's a it's a yeah, it's a sort of more comfortable spot.
1: And and did you find Plutarch's lives um, a, a, a rich source? Because
0: uh, I should also recommend those to our readers um, as yeah.
1: after they've read your novel, of course.
0: Yes. Um, yes and no. Plutarch, of course. I mean, this is one of the things about historians and, and historical writing. A historian of any kind will uh, dispense with the battle in two sentences. And if it's, a main, if it's a key event, I can't do that. I have to do a point of view, perhaps an opposing point of view, the the, the sweat and the smells and the colours. And I tend to think in very strong sort of sensual terms of how to make this vivid for the reader. And historian doesn't have to. He can dispose of all of that in, in a single paragraph or, or whatever. And also with someone like Plutarch in his life of Brutus, um, for example, I remember one thing that irritated me was that he said uh, some people say that Brutus was of noble stock, but others, or noble bloodline, but others, especially those who were supporters of Julius Caesar, said that he was of a common line. And that's fine for for Plutarch. He can have it both ways in the same paragraph. But I clearly couldn't do that. If I was writing a a life of Julius Caesar when it involved a life of Brutus, then I had to either make him of noble stock or of common stock. And if I did that, I was going to annoy the Roman reenactment people who would say this is complete rubbish and I still occasionally get emails from people saying um, that how can you say oh I don't know that this happened when Brutus was Julius Caesar's son now he cleared it to my mind he clearly wasn't Julius Caesar's son partly because he was at one point engaged to Julius Caesar's daughter. And even in libertine old Rome, they, they didn't engage their sons to their daughters, even their sort of half sons. So I think that's probably, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with uh, my the way I've worked it. But Plutarch and other historians have a freedom, if that's the right thing. I have to fit the history into a story and a story arc, and that means that there have to be, there have to be cliffhangers, and there have to be uh, exciting moments of crisis and tension, and it also has to sort of come to a satisfying ending, and history just doesn't, um, by almost by definition, it simply, you know, at the end of 1066 and all that, history came to a, and there is full stop, but it it never does, it always continues on. Actually, it was one of the difficulties of Pericles that, Oh, you know, I don't want to give it. Well, I'm, it's such a tricky thing, giving away. The yeah, air. yeah, yeah. Everyone knows the Titanic sinks. It is ludicrous to go into it. There isn't a person who saw the Titanic who didn't know that the ship went down. So I I, I don't want to hurt people's feelings or upset them when I say that Pericles has died. Two and a half thousand years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's reasonable to sort of expect that he's no longer with us. Um, but the, the manner of his death and the fact that the Peloponnesian Wars didn't stop, then actually they went on for decades afterwards was it was very tricky because uh, from a story point of view you want it to come as the climax you want uh, the story the you know the old show must go on you want the show to stop at that point and you want a period frankly where nothing happens for a few decades but that just isn't the case and that's the messiness of real life and that's why I like historical fiction because it is a wonderful challenge but it also has that truthfulness and messiness of real life. Um, pure fiction for me would be difficult it would have it would lack a certain it's not that it isn't incredibly powerful we've all read powerful fiction and after all it it is always about people and people are interesting we are the species who are interested in ourselves the proper study of man is man and so on Um, but historical fiction has that extraordinary access to truth and because it's true it is always more powerful the first thing people always say is good god did that really happen and you know if the answer is yes then you've created a more powerful scene than it otherwise would have been
1: so with the story that you've um uh, that you've written here we we're just at the end of the the persian wars we've got a we've got a it's almost a new athens has emerged as as along with sparta the victors over persia But you've written this brilliant scene of when, uh, well, really the founding of the Delian League. So I wondered if it would be um, good to talk a little bit about that, because uh, for our listeners, that will, I guess, that helps frame the century for Athens and Sparta.
0: It does. I, I don't I must admit, it's not something I knew about when I was starting so i i mean I, I always have to guess at the level of general knowledge you know for your readers it's probably higher than most obviously because they're by definition interested in history so for them it might be really obvious an old hat that the Delian league was founded on the island of delos which was said to be the birthplace of uh artemis and oh crikey who was the twin Apollo, brothers? i think it's apollo well done by the way i i always wanted to you know it's forbidden it's it's absolutely forbidden to spend the night on delos and, and who was that? There was an author who did it. Gerald Russell, have I got his name right? Oh, uh, Ger- was it Gerald Durrell? Durrell, Gerald Durrell, the one who said a, a taste as old as time, uh, the, a, a taste as old as cold water. Ooh. And, you know, he, he and he managed it. He evaded the really? on the island and spent the night there. And I, I've always envied him. It, it comes down to uh, one or two things I'd like to do before I die. And one of them, I shouldn't say this, obviously, <laughs> because I'd never be allowed to land on the island. But, um, you know, would be to spend the night on Delos because that would be an extraordinary uh, an extraordinary thing to do. But yeah, makes... I always
1: thought the Greeks were a bit touchy about sleeping on beaches as well.
0: The... They very much are, yes. Yeah. I mean, especially in sacred spaces. And this is why I shouldn't be mentioning this in a public, uh, <laughs> a public <laughs> interview. Um, I'm just tempted to say my other, I'm t- I might as well say it now, my other long-term... <laughs> Uh, thing that I will probably never manage. No, I better not. No, well, (laughs) (laughs) it's, oh God, it's the fact that Colditz was, um, has been recreated as a hotel, and I would very, very much like to go there and escape from Colditz, and I I won't uh, go over the roofs or something without paying my bill. I'm not (laughs) sure, that that appeals to me in a sort of fundamental, (laughs) in a fundamental way, and I'm probably too old, and I'm overweight, and my knee's gone, so it's extremely unlikely, but, um, I just i do like the idea but to get back to delos it's uh it was yes it pericles's father of course xanthippus the wonderfully named xanthippus oh, you're name, a huge fan
1: of xanthippus i can tell
0: i am because, apart from the wonderful quality of his name which means a pale horse which i couldn't help but think of the biblical thing even though nobody then would have thought of that at all but the fact that he was called a a white horse or a, a pale horse is just wonderful as a synonym for death um, and the fact that he was at Marathon, and then went on to, uh, and you know, was played a senior, a, a major part in keeping Athens free from the first Persian invasion, and then went on to be this extraordinary statesman, almost responsible for the concept of a nation, moving from city states like Athens and Sparta and Thebes, into the idea that you can all be Greek uh, Hellenes, um, is was part was you know an awful lot of that was down to Pericles' father, and the idea of a they signed a, they swore a great oath on Delos, which was physically marked by ingots of iron, um, taken presumably from the um, the 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 cargo holds of their warships, and um, where you would use iron to make the thing stable, like um like a, a keel. Um, and then dropped into the sea. And as long as the, uh, you know, they should, they would last, the oath would last, which was intended to be for eternity. It didn't last for eternity, but it was an idea that bound together um, cities and regions and states, really not just around the land either, but also, um, you know, various islands on the Aegean into a sort of proto-empire, an Athenian empire. Um, and at the time it was an extraordinary, almost a NATO to some extent, of the ancient world, because they it was a pact of mutual defence, um, not an aggressive pact, it wasn't meant to be a challenge to Persia, um, but if, if you know, attack one, you attack all, and of course Athens was the, the big financial powerhouse of that, um, because it had the fleet, it had the extraordinary fleet that had come together to fight the Persians, and it's as a result of the Persian invasion, really, that this came about, that they got the fleet together and through the fleet, they saw that trade equals power equals authority and equals potentially a nation. And that's, you know, that's the foundation stone of uh, Greece to some extent. And it, it got it. It was a wonderful thing to be able to write. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good story.
1: Mm, it certainly is. Uh, now, the other character who I also can tell you're an admirer of <laughs> is um, Pausanias, uh, the Spartan regent and victor of Plataea. Um, yeah, he. Yeah. Uh, but he it, it's It is rather an unfortunate um story for him so I, I don't know if we can sort of give, i don't think we should give anything away but
0: um this is this this is the tricky bit of course again giving things away but it, it's it first of all i i do uh i i like uh, one of the things about writing historical fiction is you're not you have the advantage over real life of the fact that y- you you can describe what they're doing and also what other people say about them but then you also have their inner monologue, their inner thoughts, which I, I don't know about you, but I don't have one, you know, in, in normal life. So I can kind of add a, a layer of understanding to them. And to understand a character is to know them, is to uh, love them. To, I mean, that's almost not too strong a word. So it is very, it's so far impossible for me to write about a character in depth, over, especially over a period of books like Julius Caesar. Um, I mean, I had Julius Caesar in my head for about seven years. And that meant by the end of it and Brutus as well, that meant that I could sit down and write a scene. If you gave me a sort of topic, I could write a scene involving them that would at least be consistent within my books. I won't say it would be sort of magnificent, but nonetheless, it would be a real consistent character because he had effectively become completely real and more real than real uh, to me. And so can I just ask, what, what was what was that like? If you've
1: got Julius Caesar in your head, you, if you were sort of going for something to eat, would you, were you sort of thinking, well, what
0: would Julius Caesar order right now? Or... Well, there's an element of truth to that, because, it's that, again, that's back to the little details when it, it's one of the I, I immerse myself in information when it comes to. And then most of it seeps away again. You know, they say education is what's left when you've forgotten everything you were taught. Um, I mean, <laughs> that's true of historical fiction research as well, because there was a time when I was pretty good on a Roman kitchen and whether they had windows or not and what the spoons looked like and things like this. So, yes, if I went to a restaurant, in theory, when, when, with it all fresh in my mind, that I could be comparing and contrasting the fish sauce presented to me to the fish sauce they they used and so on. So it, it becomes, yes, it's quite immersive, but it's, it's more it's more the how it's like if you knew everyone's private diaries as well then you would know a little bit more about them than simply how they looked, how they stood, how they reacted to you, how other people reacted to them. All of these things are vital, of course, in real life in judging the people around us, but it's, it's that inner monologue that makes them real. And for me, that's, um, yeah, it's hard to let go. It's hard to not love a character. So when you get to someone like Pausanias, given the, the wonderful, almost epic nature of some, the fact that he knew someone who was told he would have five victories and misunderstood this to think this meant he had to compete in the Olympics as a pentathlete. And then (laughs) it was pointed out to him that the Spartans considered battle victories. They called those, was it contests or victories? But they used the same word so that actually his, although he he wasn't successful, he didn't win the pentathlon, um, but he would Perhaps be somebody who had been promised five battle victories by Apollo, and at, at the oracle, and therefore he was an incredibly valuable man to have around. Having that part of his story and the way that worked out is just sort of epic and is wonderful. And that was Porcianus's uh, friend, and uh, their relationship together, the way spartans were expected to act around athenians the way the athenians were resisting spartan control even though everyone expected the spartans to lead in battle suddenly after after delos in particular um after salamis uh, the after winning at plataea the the athenians were feeling a little bullish a little bit like they didn't need to be pushed around and and led always by the spartans and that's a crucial part of the story the development between those two cities and of course it's what led to war between them um, the Spartans always assumed that they would lead and did lead. They led at Plataea, for example, and the Athenians accepted their leadership without question. But over time, as Athens became more and more powerful and richer, then they had the sort of uh, authority to start saying no. And the moment they said no, they were in. Well, war was effectively inevitable. I mean, this this is this is the backdrop to the life of a young man putting on plays with Aeschylus in uh, Athens and you can't ask for more god
1: yeah it's 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 extraordinary i mean the, the, yeah, all the there's the, so many rich characters in there Aeschylus, yeah is,
0: is among them and yes. it's fantastic the fact that Aeschylus was at Marathon, uh, the fact that he saw his brother, well, his brother was killed at Marathon, and we know he lost a hand because that's so he presumably uh, bled to death. I mean, he was a man who'd seen war, who'd seen violence, right up close and personal, but he also wrote some of the most extraordinary incandescent. Uh, plays that exist and we have in his The Persians, we have the first play that survives in the Western canon because unfortunately the plays before then have been destroyed and lost and that's another example of the gaps. Um, There are only fragments uh, before then, as far as I know, no full plays and his satire plays which involve such vulgarisms as people walking around with bobbing phalluses and, and, and you know it, it, things like that there is only one complete example of that so it's very hard to judge an entire genre uh, from that sort of thing but the the details of the um of the athenian play and the way uh, you know the benches were made of persian warships for example and uh, yeah
1: you know, it's fascinating it's,
0: that. Oh, i love all of this i mean it's, it's this sort of thing it's very hard when you come across something like a really cool fact and you want to put it into the, the, the book because, for example, the fact that Spartans didn't box because when they, they exercised, they ran endlessly and they wrestled constantly and they lifted rocks and, as weights and so on and so on. But the reason they didn't box is because that means that half of every bout would involve a loser and they didn't feel that they should ever treat uh, train men to lose. But the Athenians did box. Now, that was a fact I put in. So then I was able to write a scene where in a personal fight between an Athenian and a Spartan, then I have the Athenian using boxing techniques which the Spartan wouldn't have known. And I was delighted, absolutely delighted by that because it's a good way to work in just a really cool, interesting thing that I'd found out. I mean, that's one of the reasons I love doing it, of course, because you do come away with interesting facts. I mean, you do in all books. I, I learned from Dick Francis off the top of my head that horses can't vomit. So if you, if you make a horse... <laughs> sick um as in on a plane or a ship it just gets sicker and sicker and sicker and it cannot expel anything from its stomach so it eventually can die and this has stuck with me from <laughs> dick francis the champ queens champion jockey so i <laughs> i must i accept his authority to tell me this is true it better be true by the way <laughs> because i think i've used it in a couple of books um you learn you know you pick up things from fiction all the time and history historical fiction is a, a good vehicle for that because if you're interested in the subject as well as the story you you pick up interesting things yeah you,
1: you'd have got a letter by now i'm sure if, yeah. if <laughs> correct i hope so yeah so kimon um or kymon i'm i'm now um doubting which one i should be how i should be saying it um th- but he he like he's this amazing general he yes. really is but his uh, father was brilliant as well
0: yes Miltiades, I mean, he was the one in command at Marathon. I was probably very unfair to him, but I I needed a a storyline about someone being uh, less than keen to go into the battle for that because I had to explain a court case that happened afterwards when Miltiades was um, accused of, well, basically accused of failure. You have this appalling uh, Athenian system, this wonderful safety valve of being able to take anyone, no matter how powerful, no matter how authoritative, how successful, I mean, someone who played a key role in Marathon, so literally saved Athens, was then, he had a a fairly minor in comparison, uh, what's the word, campaign that went wrong and the Athenians banished him. I mean, they they fined him something like 60 talents, if I remember rightly, and they were, uh, and then he was going to be arrested and then he didn't get banished in the end because he died of uh, his wounds. So that's right. They, they find him a fortune, that, which was the sort of fundamental amount they used to start the Athenian navy. So Caimon's family, and then as he became the commander of the navy, yes, it wasn't a story I knew at the beginning, but through his father and then through Cymone's own successes, things like bringing the bones of uh, Theseus back to Athens, the, the famous king, the one who, the hand that, helped, that attacked the Minotaur and so on and so on um bringing those bones back and leading in key battles and I don't want to give away too much of his his story but he was he played a fundamental role in saving Athens especially as the Persians did not give up and after I mean you know after Thermopylae and Plataea they were ready to go again on two or three other occasions and it was really only Cimon that stopped them doing that and therefore his story became it it wouldn't sit still it wouldn't uh you know, uh, it, w- it wouldn't stop asking to be told. And I think that's um, that's a vital part of it. I mean, it's a vital his relationship with Pericles is absolutely key to it as well, um, even though Pericles also stood against him in at one point in a law trial. And the big question for me was whether he was uh, anyone could prosecute any law trial. So the question was, was he doing it deliberately to help his friend get off or whether he was actually trying to you know, prosecute his friend? And that's a tricky one. That's a matter of judgment. Um, I won't tell you which way I went because, you know, the the readers should find this kind of thing out. But uh, the the, the business in Athens of only needing 6,000 votes to banish someone for 10 years. So half my major characters, including Pericles, own father, get banished for 10 years. Cymone gets banished. Themistocles gets banished. Xanthippus gets banished. Aristides gets banished. You have the wonderful story of Aristides heading towards the Agora, and he comes across a literate man, and the man says, "Would you mind scratching some of the, the, the name on the pot on the shard, the ostracon, from which we get the word "ostracize?" And he said, would you mind scratching the name? And Aristides says yes, because he's a literate man. and says, whose name would you like me to scratch for the banishment? And it's the name of Aristides. I mean, this is a wonderful story and he does it. That's the point. He puts his name on the pot and then hands the pot shard back to the man to go and vote for Aristides the just, as he was known, to be banished. But it was a safety valve because there was no appeal against it and there was no counter vote. You only needed 6,000 votes out of an assembly of about 20,000 to make that person just disappear from public life for 10 years and probably, of course, you know, lowered life expectancies and the like, probably forever, although one or two people did come back. And then the wonderful thing about the, the first couple of books, um, Gates of Athens and Protector, is that if the Persians invade and you have banished your major generals, which the Athenians had, you have to ask them to come back. <laughs> you, you have to bring them all home. And that that was an amazing sort of series of chapters to write because I had literally ships going out to find them, these people that they banished and bring them home again because suddenly um, they didn't have the luxury of banishing their major uh, generals and war leaders. So it, it's an amazing, it's a fascinating society actually. It ancient. really is. Yeah.
1: Can you imagine if, if we the electorate had that power today to ostracize? Well, just...
0: we'd use it, wouldn't we? I mean, uh, the danger of not having a counter vote is is, well, was seen even in ancient Athens, because it shocked people. One or two of them were banished, and probably Kymon was banished. He was sent away for 10 years, and he, uh, he really shouldn't have been, because they desperately needed him. Um, he's another one they brought back. Um, but the, yes, I think if, I mean, it, it would be hard in this day and age, with petitions and so on, it, there's an element of Athenian uh, democracy perhaps there, that actually that probably isn't an accident. The, the idea of giving uh, as much power as possible to the, the people to vote in some sense is, is well, it started in Athens and it's it's been valuable ever since to the people, because the only alternative is either tyranny or the authority of, re- well, religion, uh, you get a theocracy of, of some sort, and it, it, it's a tricky thing to accept any authority, really, I mean, why should I do what you say? You know, the, it's, it's a tricky one, I don't, but even if there's a million well, if a million of you say that I should do it one way, then as much as I might dislike it, then I will accept it, because I can't find another authority that I'm comfortable accepting, and the Athenians seem to understand that, and frankly, it's a lot more noble in some ways it, it's like Churchill's thing, it's the worst of all systems, except for all the others i mean that that's about the best you can say about it, but I do prefer it to being told that I have to do this because the man's a nobleman or because he's a favorite of the king or a mistress of the king or whatever it is. I'm not sure where else authority can uh, derive that would, uh, you know, that I'd be comfortable with. This is the only thing. Democracy, the demos, uh, the mob, the crowd is the only real font of authority as far as I can tell. Like it or not. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, love them or loathe them it's absolutely yeah, the ty- tyranny
1: yeah, of the majority I, I suppose yeah yeah. Yeah,
0: well, yeah. it is exactly and it can be a tyranny but on the other hand what's the alternative and that's the only thing because the alternative is always someone saying well I know best and you think well <laughs> do you mm,
1: yeah absolutely uh, now one thing I did want to mention is is and as and you, you you've you've I think hinted at that already is that we don't know who Pericles's first wife was or, yes. or um you know who so you
0: she was married, to, isn't it ridiculous? They, I mean, they often didn't record women's names with anywhere near as much effort as the men. So she was married to a man, I think, called Hipponicus, if I remember rightly. And they, there's two or three possible men that they might have met. So it's not 100% clear. But no, she's a non character. All we know is that effectively she was older than Pericles, she had been married before and that uh, and that they got do- oh and had two children of course two his first two sons Paralus and xanthippus named for his father um came from that marriage so they're, they're sort of vital players and then the fact that they get divorced um and that's pretty much it everything else has to come from the the pen of fiction if you like simply because the details aren't there so you know you you do the best you can and you try and make it for me it's, it, it was tricky to do a whole relationship from um, sort of meeting in slightly unusual circumstances, and then right through to falling out with one another and becoming absolutely sick to the sight of one another it, it is, is a tricky thing to write and do well, without, by the way, making my hero character, Pericles, look like a complete, um, you know, monster, because it, it's tricky to write a marriage breaking down. Though people say bad, you know, unpleasant things, and it's hard to maintain your heroism when you are... In a shouting match with your first wife you know but it's also i think difficult because the the
1: way women were sort of viewed in in that period were essentially to produce children and and that was about it really um which for modern audiences it's, is yeah. difficult
0: it's a tricky thing i mean uh, Obviously, yes, because especially in the sort of, uh, let's say, wealthier classes, women were expected to stay indoors most of the time, tended to by slaves. Poorer women did tend to go out into the agora and the street markets and so on, partly because they had to. Um, It's like the business of um, bedrooms that uh, poor people tended to sleep together on a single bed, whereas wealthier people had separate rooms and and separate beds. Um, There were different classes and the way they treated women and the way they interacted with women were... Different in those times, but yes, in general, um, the female characters, although I suspect they played as important a role uh, as as women always have in every aspect of history, um, were not uh, front and what's the word, what's the phrase front and for foremost um, when it comes to the writing of the history. Herodotus and Thucydides and so on tended not to record um, the influence of the women, but as I uh, <laughs> I grew up with a sort of working mother and I have a wife and daughters and I have some idea of how history is always driven along by, uh, by the women. And uh, frankly, I would, I would not have done half the things I'd done if my, my wife hadn't pushed me or persuaded me or um, convinced me that I was good enough to do it. You know, the, the role is important um, and I know that. Uh, so, you know, when I'm writing ancient history, the historians might have left them out, but I tend not to.
1: Does she read your um uh, your final or throughout or what's See, her role in your
0: process? I will say I will use the word heroic because it's not so much that she reads them, but it is the final thing I do with every manuscript before I hand it in is that I read it aloud from start to finish, which really takes, it, well wow. it takes days because it is very very time consuming, but it is the only way for me to do a slightly different uh, perspective that that means I can catch errors and I do it as fast as I can so that I'm still remembering chapter three when he went west and then in chapter 18 when he's no longer in the west and he's suddenly in the east and I realize I've made a mistake. I, I, I notice plot errors but it means my wife has to sit and uh, in I would say endure. I mean I, I know <laughs> that this is putting my own stuff in, <laughs> under a spotlight perhaps it doesn't deserve but it is it, not everyone uh enjoys an audiobook and and i will be honest i have a monotonous uh reading voice it, i hope not a monotonous speaking voice oh, cool. but i no. when i'm reading i tend to sink according to my wife into a, <laughs> uh into a monotone well and i was going to very... ask
1: if you sort of act characters if, when you're reading out the
0: i i do a little bit um I do if I'm writing a I mean I do because there's all sorts of things I won't call them tricks but there's also sorts of techniques that I might do there might be a, a short sentence that I know is followed by another short sentence because I'm trying to play with the reader's appreciation of time and I I sort of want almost a flashing image followed by a flashing image so I might read that Uh, in a particular way, um, because I know the, the technique that I'm trying to, somebody else might not necessarily spot what I'm doing there. Or there might be echo. Somebody emailed me this morning to say, actually, the book that's just gone out, he said, was it deliberate that I said about a ship um, landing on the shore and I said dead where it had been alive and then a, about a chapter or so later and it comes back onto the water I said alive where it had been dead And was this deliberate or was it just a, a, a coincidental echo and I said no that was deliberate yeah. <laughs> I do this kind of thing deliberately I, I work on words in the way they sound and the way they they work against each other all the time um, which does affect the way I read it aloud sometimes but it's it's still it's worth it for me and and the and she seems to, I'll say she seems to enjoy it, but she, we're still married, so.
1: <laughs> that's good, that's good. Now, now, um, the opponents of the Greeks are the Persians, and yeah. uh, the way you've written about them is, there's the great scene with a, with a Persian doctor um, mm-hmm. c- cleaning, um, uh, well, sort of uh, talking about how clean you should be. And it just made me think, it's like those realities, um, <laughs> what everyday life was like in the ancient world. I mean, they didn't have uh, Lynx Diogen, the did they? So um, it, it, but little details like that, I find really interesting. And I, and I yes. love the way you introduced that into the, the story.
0: Yes, I mean, all these sort of things, they do fascinate me. The whole idea about how often you should bathe and whether you can use oil and stri- scraping it away. I mean, I've, I've covered some of these things before in ancient Rome. Some of the, the Greek things, that, I'll tell you the thing that bothered me the most, and it still bothers me because I still don't fully understand how it worked was the fact that they had no toilet paper of any kind. So, that, and they used something that appears to, is only ever described as toilet stones. Now, I don't know if that made you wince, but when I thought about this, and if you if you Google Greek toilet stones, you will see, frankly, some stuff that looks pretty abrasive. I was expecting maybe marble <laughs> or something like this, but these, they look mm. more sort of pumice stones or what at the, the point, or tile. And they they don't look like the kind of thing I want to go anywhere near, you know, that part of me. And, and And even then, the idea of trying to use that to clean oneself makes me sort of, it makes me wonder how on earth it worked. No wonder you had to bathe regularly, and dear God, (laughs) <laughs> so that, that sort of uh, that sort of detail I find oddly fascinating because it's important to get right. That shaving, uh, you know, they uh, they everyone over a certain age had a beard, that's true, but some were clean shaven. So they did have razors, and if you've ever tried to to uh, strop a um, uh, a cutthroat razor, you know how difficult it actually is to do to keep a really good edge without shaving becoming quite so you know almost agony. Um, so it's things like that. Did they have good enough quality steel? one thing leads on to another, and and you can never lecture about it. You can never drop this kind of thing in because it's it's instantly history so it has to be revealed through the scene you know Pericles getting up in the morning and he is shaved by a a young woman standing behind him and it's it's things like that 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 for me make it as real as possible because you are trying to drop the reader into a society Um, And whether it's the way a Persian talks or the the interesting sort of different tactics that they used or the way the king might speak to his mother, I try and get this stuff right, if at all possible, um, because it's important. I don't want the reader jarred out of it. And I always, uh, you know, if I use, I avoid using words like silhouette, for example, because I know, I think it was Etienne de Silhouette who invented the sort of blackface um, shadow um, cutting of card um and he was a frenchman of i think uh, your readers will get me will say i'm wrong now but it was yeah i didn't know I think, this so this is fascinating i think um or you know i avoid using a word like boycott or you know for the same sort of reason um if at all possible i avoid using anachronisms in the text um just because i know that they will jar people will be jolted out of the the, the story and I, I really don't want that i I want them to be completely lost in it and turning every page, ideally with breathless excitement. I mean, that is always my my aim, and I don't want anything to interfere with that.
1: Well, I I did. Um, I, I think that you wrote you wrote it with humour as well, which I I, I definitely appreciated. Um, I my wife, her parents are Iranian. So any time a Persian appears in a story I, I love, uh, particularly with a bit of humour, and I always sort of um, uh, 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 mention it to her. But she, yeah, she she was um, she was telling me that Golshan, Gol in, in Farsi, is this his name as a ca- of a character who's a Persian? I'm just for our listeners, so they're aware um, he's called Golshan, which she was telling me that uh, Farsi Gol is is the word for flower, which makes sense because his name is is garden isn't it
0: yes he refers to it as a garden yes and then there's a moment of silence it'd be yes the, it was it was that wasn't that was me being funny or trying to be funny yes yeah it uh, was funny it was funny <laughs> ah yeah yeah there Fantastic. is there's an awful lot of humor in in life i mean in a normal sort of uh, you know any any normal interaction there will be banter for want of a better word so it's vital to put that kind of thing in and I mean, my father was in the uh, various parts of the RAF, including Bomber Command during World War Two. And so he lost people sitting next to him um, once or twice. And his, the examples of completely black humour that he had, I mean, incredibly grim stuff that he would sort of turn into, or would find amusing. You know, it influenced me without a doubt. It made me aware that actually um, it's a response to trauma particularly uh, men, uh, you know, we, we tend to uh, make some stupid joke when someone's just had his head cut off. It's ridiculous. And it's not in any way to trivialize or to to, to mock it or anything like that at all. It's just a, it's another safety valve. And that mm. if you don't include that, well, you're back to it not being quite realistic. You need someone to say something ridiculous at, the, at exactly the worst possible moment, because in real life, people do. And you're trying to write real life it has to come across as plausible um yeah which i mean you know, I, I do the best i can i'm not saying i always get it right but it you, you, it is the constant struggle of historical fiction to make it as real as possible bearing in mind that you are dealing with the values of people you know of societies which are not always your values so uh if Genghis yeah com- the past is still- a
1: foreign country isn't it
0: yeah well it is and if someone like Genghis Khan turns his children out into the snow and basically saying whichever one of you survives can come in, um, then, you know, that's that's not a, it's not an easy scene to sort of appreciate. But and, and to you know, but it, these things happen. So you have to be. Uh, you know, I, I do try not to bring a modern uh, critical tone to it, uh, which is a little bit helpful. The fact that my dad was of a previous generation born in 1923. His father was born in 1850. So uh, he had my dad at 73 and therefore and lived to 95. So my dad knew a very elderly Victorian growing up. So wow. as ridiculous as it sounds when I'm writing about the ancient world, I do feel sometimes that I've had um, an experience or access to older values than most people of my generation. Put it, you know, put it that way. Yeah, and that's been yeah. that's always been uh, valuable. Um, the sort of again, the, the rough humour is, is an absolute crucial part of that. Um, also, from my, my mother's side, I sometimes mention the fact that uh, she was brought up with somebody, a, a, an old lady who had been damaged by the Spanish flu of after 1918, and I say damaged, she wasn't uh, physically, uh, she, her lungs were okay, but she'd had a sort of mental breakdown. And which is an interesting aspect of it that most people don't hear about. And so she could be found out in the garden when the planes went overhead. She was <laughs> found in the garden trying to bring them down with a pair of tweezers that she was re- reaching up into the sky and trying to pull them out. And if they passed a motor car um, when they were in their pony and trap going into the local town, they had to cover her head with a blanket because she became so upset and, and, and frightened of the noisy, smelly, dusty thing roaring past um which is again you know i'm I'm pleased to have known the people who knew the people you know this is uh an access to aspects of history that is, is not common experience i don't think
1: mm. I, I love the way you got our name in there as well thank you um <laughs> so fun. um the uh the next novel um when is that coming out then
0: it, well it will be i think i've just finished it um ah. which is i mean literally uh Three weeks ago. So I'm, I'm getting emails in from the and responses from the publishers saying that thankfully that they liked it. Um, it's it's Great. the final part of Pericles' story. It's the the building of the long walls and uh, the dealing with the, the Peloponnesian War, the you know, Sparta and Athens going to war. So it's the sort of, you know, the culmination of four books. And that will come out in, it won't be until May next year I mean the right. publishers do have it early so I don't know where uh, they could do it they could do it earlier than that but they tend to to lay out as you know sort of 12 months 18 months ahead Um in fact it's something I worked out right at the very beginning of my career that they really wanted to know that I wasn't going to produce just one book, that I had an idea for many, many books ahead, that they were investing therefore in a a career writer rather than a one-off. And also that I, uh, well, the other thing they wanted to know was whether I could take um, direction, whether if they edited something and I went up the wall and said, it's it's disgusting, how dare you um, malign my art? (laughs) Then <laughs> that might have been a much shorter career, because you know, luckily I had good editors, so this just wasn't an issue. But it, I found out later that it was something they were interested in. Could I be edited without going completely uh, bananas? Um, actually, should I tell you a quick story about that? Just please. Just, well, it's just, it's just, I happened to uh, meet the editor who edited George MacDonald Fraser. Oh wow. And, yeah and he said uh, George McDonough Fraser had been a script writer and a copy editor and he was sort of known for being very very uh, good with the details and this particular editor you know his uh, his responsibility he knew was to read the book and then to give comments to George McDonough Fraser and he did that and he he had been told to be very careful because George McDonough Fraser had made it clear that if there was any real interference He would consider walking. He would go and find a different publisher. He was not to be mucked about with. And he was already a very old man of publishing. And this particular this is late in the career stuff. And this particular editor read it through. And he said he said he said to me, he said, I found on page 87. There was a place where I thought an additional comma would have improved the meaning of the line. And then I had my meeting with George MacDonald Fraser and he said, you know, did you like the book? And I said, yes, I've, I've read the book. I love the book. And he said, was there anything, you know, you'd like to say? And he said, well, I thought on page 87 <laughs> that there is a spot where the additional comma might just improve the meaning of the line. And, and MacDonald Fraser said, oh, well, show me the show me the page. And then he looked at the page in the meeting and he read it through start to finish. And then he said, no, I don't think so. And and he said that was his entire editorial contribution for working with him for about eight years. (laughs) Oh, dear. But, you know, that's not me. That's not me. I do occasionally have characters who dismount from a horse and then 30 lines later, they dismount from the horse again. So, uh, you know, I need to be told that he cannot possibly dismount twice (laughs) in, in the same scene. Little details like this that you try and get right. It's, it's extraordinarily easy to do, despite me reading it aloud, despite me going over and over and over the books. You, it, it's amazing. Errors. Errors creep in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, uh, I certainly couldn't spot any. Um, now, you've mentioned Alexander and we'll just, yeah. we're, we're nearly running out of time. But um, well, we are running out of time. But uh, Alexander, uh, you're, you've mentioned at the beginning of this, you don't really want to go there. Yeah. But it's sort of, it it feels like, as a, you know, as a reader, I'm quite keen for you to go
0: there. I know, I do know what you mean, but I can only say that I would honestly recommend to anyone interested in the period, you've got to not mind a bit of fantasy creeping in, but that's life. And it's a, a book called Lion of Macedon by uh, David Gemmell, and he wrote another one called Dark Prince. And it's yes it is i I want to call it sort of heroic fantasy i think that's the official name for the the genre heroic historical fantasy something like that it's just with parmenian the death of nations and his story is so fantastically well done that i just can't ever i i would have to make different choices there was a general parmenian i understand and he was alexander's great general but i would have to i'd have to make Actually, the, the, yeah, I'd have to make, I'd have to take the same material and then make different choices, and I've, I've come across this once or twice before. I, I was looking at, I think it was. Um, I was King Arthur a while ago. I was looking at the possibility of writing King Arthur, and the trouble was, and I studied it in university. I have a, a son called Arthur. I mean, I've I've seen every you know possible version, of the alliterative, the stanzaic, the, the lot. It was my big thing, so I'm pretty well suited to write a King Arthur story. But the problem was, every time I came across the material, I was thinking, well, I know that someone else has done it this way. So either I take the same material and do what I consider to be a suboptimal choice or I'm basically writing the same story as someone else, and it wouldn't work. It just doesn't. So the same is true for Alexander. I would either be doing David Gemmell's choices, which would feel fundamentally dishonest and um, not recognizing the talents of a, a writer I admire, or I would be making suboptimal choices, which is a rotten way to go about it. I never phone things in. I, I love to write and I love to tell stories, and you know, I always want to do the best I possibly can. So I can't do it badly. I won't you know, do it badly.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, Con, this has been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking Thanks to you.
0: Um, Thank you very much.
1: And I wish you every success with with Lion. Thank you. Not the Lion, Lion. Uh, yes. And actually, actually, I think looking at with uh, speaking on the 26th, which I think is publication
0: it's public day, day, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. This is the day it comes out. This Fantastic.
1: Well, it's very good of you to give me, give me your time then on, on such an auspicious, auspicious occasion. Um, and yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, there you have it. Now I've put all the links that we discussed in the show notes, including Con's new book, Lion, which I highly recommend. It's lots of fun. And ancient Greece is an untapped area for historical fiction. But as I mentioned with Con, it's such a rich one. Coming up, we've got Anthony Beaver on Russia's Civil War and Gretchen Freeman on the Anglo-Irish Treaty. You can get me on the Twitter, I'm at WCQ. but I'll leave you alone now. Thank you, and good night.